Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else, and even some animals out there, this is Matt Drinkon. This is the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, and today is going to be phenomenal. For a number of reasons, we've got a great guest on today, Mr. Daniel T. Madelon. And before we get to Daniel's story, I just want to share with you that wherever you're at right now, just know that you are loved and that the power of you being here in the world is infinite. You have a tremendous opportunity each and every day. We get up, we strap on our overalls or our boots, or we put on our shorts, put on our underwear, put on all pieces of clothing. We go out and impact the world. Everyone you talk to, everyone you see, every communication you have matters. You never know when it's gonna impact someone's life, the smile they gain from you, the attention that you offer them. My friends, it all matters. So let's be mindful of how we connect with others today. Let's go out there and touch a friend we haven't touched in some time today and make a great impact. Having said that, we have an amazing opportunity today to learn and get deep into a discussion with Mr. Daniel T. Madelon. He's the founder of Hashtag Is There Enough? A provocative new conversation about the intersection of survival economics and social justice. He's also co-founder of Impact Launchpad, it's a UK-based venture studio for social impact incubation and development. And he's traveled around the world to 22 different countries, conducting a unique social, social research experiment and working from a conversation and from a book. He is working to help humanity answer the question, is there enough and how are we gonna do that? Now, his first book or his upcoming book is called The First Agreement. It's a historical and future-leaning look at economics, scarcity, and survival. And it suggests that our drivers of incentive can be measurably built around human beings at the center of our economies, rather than the assets and resources we measure them by today. In this conversation, we go deep. He starts off by sharing a story of how he lost it all. How he lost it all. It was at rock bottom on a couch. And he took it from depression to action and right now is impacting the world. He goes through several stories and several deep philosophical examples, and he asks great questions. He's a phenomenal person. The discussion I had with him both before and after the discussion were amazing. You know, he, he was very kind to my daughter when she came in to interrupt the podcast. Uh, just a, a great man. I really enjoyed this time with Daniel today, and I hope you will today as well, my friends. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Mr. Daniel T. Madelon. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. 
Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. And with that, I'd love to welcome today to the show, Mr. Daniel Mathalon. Daniel, greetings, sir. How are you? Great to be here, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed our discussion for the past few minutes getting to know you, and you were very gracious to my daughter when she came in during school. So thank you for that. I'm sure she's going to talk about you later. After that intro, I'd love to just dive right in and talk about what might be a challenge that you've experienced in your life, Daniel, that you learned from and you're willing to share with us today. Losing everything can be a great fresh start on what you want to do with your life. We've heard stories of people who've experienced that. I've certainly experienced that. And much of the work that you and I might talk about is derivative of Buckminster Fuller and his concept of the world game. Everything that we do in our conversation of the Is There Enough campaign and our work as a venture studio called Impact Launchpad is really all about that concept of the world game, which I think your audience may have been introduced to previously. And Buckminster Fuller himself lost everything and made a choice in his life, a decision in his life that his life was no longer for what we think of as success, which is personal success, but he would use his life as an experiment. I didn't realize that I had emulated that consciously at a time when I did lose everything I had, but I was able to rebuild my life in unprecedented ways to my expectation in terms of the agency I have in the world and the ability to reach people in ways that I never would have expected before had I not had that experience. So that would be my nutshell of that answer to that question. Well, when you say losing everything you had, can you elaborate and go a little deeper on what that, when was that and and what that means, please? So it was around uh, 2015. I was 55 years old at a time when many of my peers are looking to start retiring and I had to start over. Lost every dollar I had, every dollar had been invested with me, lent to me, even some that I inherited, lost friends. Really, I was just at the pit of my life at the time. And uh, there were, fortunately, people that were able to coax me off the couch I was sleeping on (laughs) and get me back into the game because I'd had some experience that was consequential and valuable to people. But I really measured everything in that moment as, as just a complete failure in life and really no reason to exist in any way that I thought of, and that's somewhat in common with where Bucky was in in his existential moment. And something just popped out at me out of some responsibility and obligation I felt to one of those people that had helped me that I had failed, that this one person in particular that I really wanted to make good with before I left this planet. And I started finding myself moving out of my depression into action by thinking about what I could do for this person. And then it started to grow into, well, maybe I can add a few other people to that list. And the way my mind thinks of, if I find a distinction or an essential piece in any discovery through the path of my life, I go, well, how about if we do that a thousand times bigger? (laughs) And that led me to return to the world game concept, which I had been introduced to by several colleagues of Mark Victor Hansen, people like that, that that I know you recently interviewed, who introduced me to the idea of the world working for 100% of humanity. And I thought, well, if I can make my life a little better working for a few other people other than myself, what if I devoted it in some way to 100% of humanity like Bucky did? Wow. And that worked. And that's why you and I are talking here. I mean, it's had great personal benefits to my fortunes, but ironically, I didn't seek to do that. It's just that if you're going to make the world work for 100% of humanity, you're part of 100%. 
right? And so, and this concept of 100%, which is uniquely aspirational and scientific and engineering and mathematical at the same time, 100% really means something, just like 1% and 99% really means something. And as a trajectory, I discovered, to my surprise, unlike the way that Bucky would primarily look, or perhaps me emulating Bucky, that I would primarily look of how to look at spaceship Earth and humanity as a whole, and what can we do to survive together. I found people reinterpreting the question of, is there enough, which starts a conversation about the world game. And they reapproached that. And then this is from 22 countries and thousands of hours of research I'm reporting to you. They were coming back to me with the question of, am I enough? And I didn't really connect that this is sort of where I was in this existential moment that you asked me about in the beginning of this conversation. I certainly did not think I was enough. But as I began to recognize that people were coming back with this so often, I realized the obvious that we all don't think we're enough. Followed closely by am I enough is are we enough? That could apply to a relationship, an organization, and even a nation. A nation has an identity. And I would suggest to you that humanity has an identity like a being also. You've just put me really into my head here, and I'm feeling some pretty deep existential philosophy and emotion. And there's two things I want to highlight. Let's go back to number one, which, I mean, I just respect and love the heck out of you for what you just shared. Depression in a really low spot, and then you chose to take action by thinking of how you can help one person. You thought one person in your mind. You thought, how do I take action to, to help that one person? Can you explain how you made that decision to do that. Like you were down, you're on the couch, you're wiped out and you make that decision to get off and do it. Can you go back to that moment and and tell us a little bit about how that came to be? And then we'll go to the world game. Sure. I I really appreciate the question. It's an unusual angle of personality that you bring into it. And I've been blessed with one part of what I think transformation is about. I'll talk about what the second part is, but with a self-awareness that's a little unusual, even from an early age. And when I say that, I mean, particularly when we talk in transformation and consciousness and all of being able to see oneself from the outside in, even though famously Bucky Fuller said, no one has ever seen anything outside themselves. And that's a sentence I've spent a lot of time thinking about the impact of. But when we talk about the third eye, astral projection, those sorts of things, I've always had that capability to emulate, can I look at myself objectively, even though we really can't, but it's still a good exercise to attempt to do. And so I've just always naturally had that before I was conscious of its value. So I've had an inclination to observe myself from that vantage point. And I guess something just clicked in me that, well, if helping one person has given me some movement, maybe I can add a few more and a few more and a few more. And I am a very big thinker and own that. Even sometimes to a fault, as some people would say, because I tackle really massive issues in my professional work which I think are pursuit of the world game to which people have often said, wow, that's really great, Daniel. Hope you can pull it off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. And I counsel and coach and develop founders, help them get their ideas to market as my professional work. And I'm always counseling founders to be more focused and not all over the place. And I'm easily accused of being too much kind of thing and that sort of thing. But I'm very comfortable in that identity and that recognition. In fact, contrary to conventional wisdom, the bigger our vision has become, the clearer our vision has become. And both from our for-profit work and our non-profit work, again, in pursuit of the world game, we are definitely looked at as optimists. (laughs) 
So we deserve to be in this conversation, but even idealists, and we don't think we're idealists, even though we pursue some great big ideals, we think of ourselves as clarify us. <laughs> if okay. that was a word, okay. it's not, <laughs> you know, and we think that optimism really, and I'm so glad you spend so much time in your conversation pursuing the essence of what optimism is about. And we think that optimism is really about clarification. It's about human possibility as opposed to human dystopia and buying into that negative future. Whew. And I love where we're going. Now, let's just keep going further down the, the rabbit hole here. I love it. Or not down the rabbit hole. Let's go up the spiral and build. I, I love that you're bridging the gap between a big vision and turning it clear. How might we turn things from a big, exciting vision into more clear actions or into more clear lens? I think it would be necessary to have us define the world game for a moment, because I think your question is asking me, as I interpret your question, is how do we conduct ourselves in such a way to make life better? Even if we don't want to think about all of humanity better, but even just our own world, right? How to make the world work for 100% of humanity is the world game. It has a few conditions added after that phrase, but that's the essence of it. But you can also reinterpret that question as how do I make my world work for 100% of mine, my tribe, my family, my relationship, my interests, my finances, all of that. It's, it's a clarifying expectation question when we drop the question, think of it as a stone in the water, of asking, not telling people, is there enough? There are variations of these three words, by the way, depending on the particularities of which genre you're applying it to, because you can take that deliberately vague and neuroplastic, ambiguous question and apply it to a specific topic like, is there enough water? Is there enough compassion, right? It could be either a resource, human value, whatever it is. And so understanding the world game, the world game first has to have a possibility to it that the world could work for 100% of humanity. And Buckminster Fuller did not approach that as an activist, a politician, or an advocacy leader, what he approached it from, which you probably heard from Mark Victor Hansen, as an engineer and a mathematician would, a possibility individual with the highest aspiration that normally people would say is optimistic and idealism, and he looked at it as practicality. He said that the world can work for 100% of humanity. I converted it into a three little word by accident, by the way, which is a story in and of itself, how that came out. But by accident, I went from 25 years of emulating people like Mark Victor Hansen and telling people that there was enough to go around. And I got somewhere with that. It's like telling people that there's abundance. And when they're in scarcity, they're going, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. when you, right? when you ask people, the question, is there enough or variations of it that apply to the situation, something starts to happen where people become responsible for that answer. I'm not going to tell you where I've asked this question in 22 countries and thousands of hours that people have all said, yes, there's enough or no, there's enough. It's always conditional and situational anyway, which is really gets to the heart of the matter. But I will say that people who generally have a very pessimistic view of our future, and I include them in our rooms and conversations, especially on clubhouse, places like that, we make them welcome in the room. We first of all tell them that pessimists point out dangers that optimists don't see. And we clearly have evolved both sorts of natures in humanity and we need each other. If the world's going to work for 100% of humanity, it's got to work for everybody. And so when we pose this question, is there enough? And there's a conversation that engages after that, 
It takes about 15 minutes to do and people can learn how to do this formally. But when you get into that conversation of examining with another human being what enough is, you come to two or three conclusions. Number one, your definition of enough and mine is as different as a fingerprint. And your definition of enough a month from now is going to be quite different than it is today. So it's a perpetual examination, a lens, a magnifying glass, really of what there's not enough of. (laughs) Because the natural state of the universe and even of the world, despite people walking around saying like it's a fact that we live on a planet of finite resources, which has not mathematically ever been shown to be true. But when we examine that reality that there's enough to go around as a base rather than how we think of it now, which is that there's a scarcity as a base and some of us get to be rich, let's say. When you examine it from that standpoint and you realize that human beings either manifest and create scarcity or limitations to it because they think that there's scarcity and who gets to have access to it, or they can recognize that true wealth, and you have people listening to this podcast clearly who think about wealth and finances and all of that, true wealth is built by agreement not by resources. And the first time I ever stated that, an economist challenged me that I was rewriting economic theory and all I was trying to do was align people to the concepts of a global impact bank that we want to launch in 2024. You know, he was shaking when he said it. This made me pay attention quite a bit. I'm not an economist, but I'm kind of an amateur economic enthusiast, let's say. But I think that economics shouldn't be the study of the allocation of scarce resources It should be the study of how humans collaborate to produce wealth, wealth, not just money. Money is a portion of that. So I think that how people can build more agency in their life is by beginning to examine enoughness, not scarcity and abundance, but how do they uniquely define enoughness for themselves, for their relationships and for their organizations. It's a ripple effect that has nothing but positive benefits, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Wow. I'm going to pause there. I've, again, my mind is, is throbbing and exploding with, with, with an energy and a joy to hear someone speak in such optimistic, I would say optimistic terms. And I love the inclusivity of the pessimist because as you said earlier, to have 100% of everyone, that means everyone. And you're not excluding people from the conversation on Clubhouse, for example. You bring everyone in because I think this way, you think that way, he thinks that way, she thinks that way, and it's all humanity. So I love that point. And I wonder about the mathematical certainty. So I, I want to challenge you. Let's just say I'm a pessimist or I'm a realist. And then you make the statement that it's not mathematically been proven that we have unlimited resources because the earth is uh, with finite resources, one might think. So if someone were to challenge that, then how would you respond? <laughs> you know, our economic history has some heroes or villains within it, depending on your point of view, who have mathematically shown us that we are going to run out, going to run out of this, going to run out of that. Turn of the century in the 1900s, it was predicted within six years from the time that it was the study was released based on mathematics, that we would run out of places in London for any of the horse and carriages to get through because there would just be too much manure in the street. And six, seven years later, we had the automobile. And this has been repeated over and over and over. It's considered Malthusian economics the scarcity economics. And in 1972, MIT released a very important study that I would recommend everybody who's concerned about wealth, abundance, and scarcity, and all of these issues. 
and it was called The Limits to Growth, 1972. So I put a lot of study into people who think like this. I, I interviewed Paul Ehrlich, the author of The Population Bomb, which was a highly influential book when I was growing up. And it basically said we were just going to run out of ways to support the 8 billion people we have. And you could say, given what we're dealing with climate change now, where a third of Pakistan, as you and I speak, is underwater. Mississippi doesn't have any clean water, except maybe yesterday they got something turned on and so on and so forth. We have a lot of evidence of existential threat to humanity that appears to be based on having too many people consuming things. So we have people running under that idea that are like somewhat amenable to events that might reduce our population, even though they really love humanity but they've made their peace with, that's probably what we're going to have to go through. And yet, here's the question that I'm going to ask to the pessimist about this. Have we ever run out of a human resource in history that we didn't replace with a better one? To this point, I'm not talking about what could happen in the future. Past performance does not equal future results. So I'll accept that. But up to this moment, as you and I speak, I don't find any place in history where we ever ran out of a resource we didn't replace with a better one. Can you also name me one time in human history where a migration, a mass migration of people from one part of the earth to another part of the earth caused the receiving area to have their economic fortunes decrease? Wealth has always increased in every place that there's ever been a migration. In fact, if you look at the Jewish people who are such a small population in the world compared to Islam and Christianity, it has such an enormous sense of identity. And in the book, I'm forgetting her, the, her title for Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, a climate journalist uh, of great note. I'm forgetting her name. I apologize uh, right now. But Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, she makes the case that the movement around the planet is also what contributed, obviously, persecution in displacement, but is what accounted for the Jewish identity being able to have its seeds all over the world, basically, which nature shows in all sorts of ways to amplify that. So if we ask the pessimist these two questions, up to this point in history, do you have any precedent that proves your prognostication of the future to be true? You're not running in very good company economically. And let me give you a practical example. Water scarcity on this planet, aside from Ukraine, is the number one cause of war and conflict without any question. <clears throat> and yet we're working with a company, this is on our venture studio side, one of 120 companies that started up in, in the year 2020 that are devoted to atmospheric water generation that doesn't even touch groundwater, could even be refilling groundwaters, powered only by the sun, only by the sun, which Buckminster Fuller once measured the ratio between how much sun we get every day, he called it energy income, compared to how much we spend, both in bad ways and good ways. But the energy relationship of the two between expenditure and income is 43 zeros to the right of the decimal point. And think about how hard that was to measure back in his time. But this is really, it's an innovation problem, you could say. But looking at the technology I look at, which that technology I just mentioned, atmospheric water generation, could cover the planet for about a trillion dollars one time of expenditure. We'd cover every one of 8 billion people on this planet if we had to start from scratch. That's how affordable it is, right? And today's technology. And yet, do we really have an innovation crisis? I would say we have an implementation crisis 
of available technology that we could put to work. And what are we lacking for that? In my book, what we're lacking is human agreement, which is, by the way, what manufactures money. Money is not manufactured by anything other than agreement. Even the gold standard was an agreement, right? We think of gold standard as something sort of given to us by God. It's a choice that human beings made in enough numbers together. So the real power, the real human resource is agreement, which I would submit to you and your audience is a highly overlooked human resource, even for people like us who do coaching and other sorts of strategic work. And we moderate and mediate different interests as project managers and all the things we end up doing. I think your daughter, because I know this, I've done this with a kindergarten class, can be shown that her ability to collaborate is far more important than the car her dad drives or how pretty she is or how fast she runs in terms of predicting success. I've had this conversation with kindergartners in a particular age-appropriate way. And what I suggest to you and your audience is we are not as threatened by climate change, tribalism, inequality, and our other social ills as we are by our ability to collaborate sufficiently to meet those challenges. That's the real deficit is our inability to agree. We are warlike creatures that come from 70,000 years of war. And so when we talk about the world game, about making the world work for 100% of humanity, it's to replace our war games. That's fundamentally what that's about. And that's a responsibility you have, I have, everybody listening to my voice has. We shouldn't think of war as nations because it comes out of a culture of war that we in, engage in every day with human beings. We define ourselves by how we're different from each other. We don't start with how we're the same and then how we're different. These are all linguistic challenges that we have because our conversation creates reality, as obviously um, Saida pointed out in one of your recent podcasts. Mm. I want to come back to that thought about the conversation and first, I want to draw a parallel. Before we had this discussion, I actually had a, a conversation a couple of days ago with a friend of mine, and they asked me what was going on in my life. And I said, a big celebration is that my wife and I decided to get a new car. And I said, we're getting a new electric car. And what I heard in response was, oh my goodness, have you heard what's happening in California? You know, about how they're telling people not to plug in their cars. And if everyone gets an electric car, we're going to run out of power. It's going to shut the whole country down. And I heard that. And the next things that came out were, I can't believe you've been taken over by the left. And I'm like, well, I didn't equate anything of this to California. I didn't equate any of this to politics. I equated all of this to the idea that I think that you're sharing is that when the human minds have been given an opportunity to innovate and create new things, anytime in history, we've always risen the occasion. We've gone to the moon. We've been able to create electricity or at least find a way to use it. Cars, you name it, your exact example. Uh, I believe in that innovation mindset that we will find a way and we'll find a way. You know? So that I'm agreeing with you. But also that conversation, when one person believes this and they're, they're going to stay stuck in that belief, how do we bring that conversation to a place, Daniel, where we can start to agree or at least open up the minds of these different parties who are ready for war or ready for the debate? How do we open everyone up? That might be the next thought. I'm going to answer this, first of all, to say that the opposite of agreement is not disagreement. Okay. The opposite of agreement is war. And disagreement is part of how, depending on how we approach it, of course, and I'm not suggesting we have the way, I think we need a thousand flowers blooming on this topic, right? But if we 
approach the conversation for the purpose of producing agreement out of disagreement wherever we possibly can, that begins to change. Look, intentionality changes behavior. We know that. You and I both know that. Back to my story of getting off the couch was about a new intentionality, and then the behavior followed that. So if we approach conversation with glorifying agreement, because let's face it, we glorify partisanship. <laughs> we make our identity bipartisan. Disease on planet Earth. It's not just in the United States or Canada. It's all over the world. The glorification of partisanship, which I believe is my proof that we are prone to war before we're proponent prone to agreement, not necessarily war with a gun, but let's face it, conversation about partisanship that then ripples to other people, that then ripples to other people actually can create real war. We have evidence of that, in my opinion, around the world. So we have to be careful with our conversation and replace our war conversation, things like crushing it and boom, and you know we slayed them and all that stuff, which we do sort of automatically creates a ripple of an us and them kind of mentality. And I think that if you look at the core conversations of Is There Enough, which is on our Agreement Academy, we basically become an Agreement Academy now for the world. And if you go there and you look at the six core conversations, we talk about values before positions is one of our core conversations. And a second one is sameness before difference. So for example, if I was meeting that individual that said, I can't believe you've been co-opted by the left and so on and so forth, I would say... What is the value that that guy's expressing? This is what I've trained myself to do. I think he's expressing a value of freedom and choice. He doesn't want the government telling me what to do with my behavior and my activities and the free choices that I wish to make. That's what I hear. And our societies evolved brains that are both individualistic and socialistic, not using socialistic in a political sense, but societal values versus individual values, right? And so we, again, back to the conversation, we need everybody in this 100% conversation. So what I look to do is elevate and identify and understand those values before I talk about the positions. Because that's an agreement I can make about freedom of choice without necessarily agreeing on the position of whether we should determine that there should be no gas petrol cars on the road. That's a position. We brought people together around the very hot topic of abortion and had people be able to find agreements of value on the value of human life that they never really associated with people that are, quote, pro-choice, right? And people who are pro-choice can also agree on the value of that human life, even if we define the legal ramifications of at what point should society step in and protect that life or not, and at what point and all of that. These are policy things that can emanate from a base of value. So it's not me trying to get agreement or persuade somebody or get them to like, like my opinion. I start with where they're at. And then I invite them at times to see where you might have two values that are competing with each other and you hold both of them dear. Like you definitely believe in freedom of choice and you're also concerned about safety, aren't you? Mm, yes. Can you see how that might rub up? And if you had to go to a desert island, you could only take one, which would be the higher priority for you. And I'm just interviewing you and asking you and validating where you come from. We had a in one of our recent clubhouses, a peaceful anarchist in our conversation. And so I just really went for the value of freedom of choice. And then I came back to him as I do with people strongly on the traditional conservative side, not necessarily what we call conservatism 
going on today, which is another topic of partisanship. But in traditional conservatism, you're there to sort of protect traditions, minimum size of government. And I'll always ask somebody, well, what is that minimum size? Can we be clear about what that minimum is so we don't have to argue over the stuff we don't have to argue? So what we're doing here in this conversation of is there enough is, and we can teach people how to conduct this very, very quickly, about a 10-hour program, they can become masters at it, which we don't sell or charge for. We underwrite it. It's free. It helps our social research. But what we show people to do is to validate those values and then move really into the most important conversation. And the reason we ask, is there enough, is so we can get to the question of what are we going to do about it? And the it in that question, what are we going to do about it, is whatever we agree on that there's not enough of. So if you say, it'd all be fine if people just loved each other more. So you're saying there's not enough love. Okay. What would we do about that? And now we're into some real possibilities of things we can put into practical action. And at the end of the day, whatever you're going to propose is what you'd like to see in the world. You can have it happen as long as you got agreement to it. <laughs> well, I think everybody should be educated in an early age about compassion and love and how we're all connected and so on. Great. How would we get that? How would we align people to that? How would we align people on the other side? What you're telling me is you're a few to several thousand agreements away from that reality that you want. So in order to be not a warrior, you need to be an agreement maker. And if you're not an agreement maker and you're a warrior, which most of us are, I think I'm a recovering warrior, let's say from 70,000 years before me. So are you like in a recovering alcoholic never says he's not an alcoholic, right? But I say, if you look at that juncture and you go to either unconsciously or consciously to war and conflict, you're just going to end up with an agreement at the end of the day anyway. And Bucky would say, if he were here, I think, how about if we skip war and go right to agreement? Okay. That's what we're trying to forge. Time for a quick pause. Today's episode is sponsored by Nelson Mandela and a Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, and uh, this book has been a fantastic book that I've read a number of times. It was the first big autobiography I read in high school. And this book right here talks about just preparing, preparing. Everything we do in our life is preparing for that next place. And this conversation today with Daniel Madelon is preparing us for this next place of finding agreement with others. So sponsored by A Long Walk to Freedom, in reality, sponsored by Finding Agreement with Others. Let's go find that agreement, team. Today's sponsor for the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I love it where I can trace this back. And what I'm feeling and hearing is I'm hearing, let me just trace a couple words back. 100% of our conversation, we want to understand the values in place before we start taking positions. Understand values. So establish that value consensus around the values first. Uh, so understanding first. Uh, so once we understand the values, then we're free to move forward and engage in the, in the conversation. But before we can do that, we have to set the parameters of what the values are. I might equate this in my daily professional world in my Sandler sales training. I might call this an upfront contract, or as we get started in the discussion, we want to set the expectations. So we're both on the same page. And you put it very eloquently. Just hear you keep talking about that once you've gotten there. Well, I will add a couple of things to it. That's very relevant in terms of your demonstration, the fact that in real life, a little bit different than our online identities, we would never engage in conversations that are potentially about new agreement without some questions. 
Okay. You don't just come in and tell all those people what to do, right? You might say, this is my idea. This is what I think. What do you guys think of that? Are you aligned with that? You can't move forward without an agreement to the obvious. Take the implicit and make it explicit. Example, we've tested this around the world. In America, if you took a Trump supporter and non-Trump supporter, who are both Americans, put them in a room and require them as part of your incentivize is better than require. That's one form of incentivization. But in social research, we require it is can we acknowledge that we're both Americans between those two? Now let's argue about everything else. There's a different outcome to that conversation by taking the obvious. People think that's a waste of time to talk about what's obvious. And so this comes to like making agreement on the things we can make agreement before we go to the things that we don't agree on. A second part of those six core conversations you'll see on isthereenough.org, you will see sameness before difference. So in addition to me finding out about your values, if you care about freedom and justice and you're of a different political persuasion than I am, or you think that fairness is a value, but you interpret what fairness means in a different way, I can share that value with you and I can say we have that in common. I look at it a little differently about what's included in that fairness quotient, I think, maybe than you do. So maybe we can have an interesting discussion about that. And what I'm doing is I'm segregating the stuff we don't agree on, focusing on the stuff we do agree on, and then going back to the stuff we disagree on. That's exactly the opposite sequence of most of our conversation. Most of our conversation, and it's a very interesting bit on on social audio because people become very intimate very quickly in places like Clubhouse and other social audio. But you'll hear sometimes a guy, he'll talk about some value of research he's done over 20 years or the summation of his life or whatever it is and shares gold with us that we would never hear otherwise. And the next person that speaks will go, agree with 90% of what you just said. I noticed you didn't say anything about the environment or child education or whatever their hot button button issue is. And we have no breakdown or discussion or clarification or acknowledgement of what that guy just spent five minutes giving us of his 25 years. And think about what we're missing in that, right? If we started with agreement and then went to disagreement, I think we end up with more peace. I'm not going to say peace because it's a trajectory, right? Like towards a more perfect union or towards 100%. But if we automatically let ourselves go to our identity about how we're different than each other, we may never find any sameness at all. And what we found is when we start with sameness before difference, our distinctions of difference between each other is actually much clearer. It's not like you're even diminishing your uniqueness as an individual. And I've said earlier that our answer is there enough is as unique as a fingerprint. And I believe a single individual is more important than an entire nation. That's how much I believe in the sanctity of an individual's expression on planet Earth. But at the end of the day, if we start with our connectedness wherever we can and then go to our difference, I think we end up with a lot more. What's our favorite word? Clarity. <laughs> Man, I, I love it. I equate it to my daughter gets home from school and she scores 95 on a test. And I want to talk about all the things that she's excited about and getting 95 and talk about all of that. And through that lens of strength and what she's excited about, then possibly work to figure out how we might bring that to the 5% rather than, oh, I noticed that you missed 5% here. And I think that's what you just shared is we focus so much on what some might call the wrong or the different or the disagreement that we don't first stop to acknowledge that we agreed 90% of the time. And through that lens, we're the same. And let's use that to solve or to work on getting more connected over here. 
It's a very powerful foundation. I'm sure a lot of people listening to you are going to wish that they were brought up by fathers like you. <laughs> that ideal. And let's also expand this on a global basis of what you just said about talking about what works. It's kind of like gratitude in this sense, but talking about what works before we get to what doesn't work, you'll find references on our sources page on isthereenough.org to a group called the Gapminder Foundation, gapminder.org. And there's some incredibly powerful data and surveys that are about the state of the world. And I've met very intelligent, globally impacting people who've gone through those surveys and been shocked to discover that the world's doing a lot better than we know it is in a few areas that we think it's doing terrible. And there's a discussion on our sources page of the late Hans Rosling, who founded the Gapminder Institute, wrote a book called Factfulness. That's one of the most important books of this. So you, you remember him. I've got it. Love it. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he's talking about how we don't have to fear overpopulation because humanity has shown a consistent pathway to stabilizing population when we increase access to wealth and agency. And that's our real issue. And historically, this is something we put a lot of focus on. We have a resident historian in our work who's drawing references throughout history that point to this that each of our cycles leads to more and more people sitting at the table of conversation and therefore more and more people, representation and power. And we have very strong heart-to-heart talks about what power really is as well, which I think in a future time, maybe you and I can really dig into. But I think it's important that people recognize that I'm as in touch with, on a daily basis, the existential threats and how they're measured. I focus consistently on the problem of 2050, which is 28 years from now, where it's estimated right now that a billion people will be homeless and without a passport. And we're looking at infrastructure, if we possibly can do from our side that can adapt and support that and turn it even into a business opportunity. But while I look at those existential threats, I require myself to look at the stuff that's working in order to address those existential threats. Mm. Well, if we go back to, let's just say, one of these areas that it may, a picture may be painted as very negative. Maybe it's population growth. And if one solution or the solution might be to increase access to what you said, wealth and did you say residency? What was the word? The statistic I'm referring to is that the IPCC says that by today's estimates, we're facing a billion people homeless and without a passport 28 years from the time you and I record this. And I'd like to tell people, If we're really successful at preventing that, or if the estimates are way overblown and it only turned out to be 10% of that, that's 100 million people homeless and without a passport in 28 years, which is 100 times the Syrian refugee crisis, to put it in perspective. So we are dealing with a very different future than you and I can imagine right now. And it is for all those pessimists and dystopians out there, they love what I just said because it validates their identity and with all due respect. The question isn't really about that. The question is, what are we going to do to adapt to that? Do we have 3D printing? Yes. Do we have the ability to mine water from the air, as I've indicated earlier? Yes. Do we have the ability to grow food in vertical farming without soil? Yes. Can we make a fish farm on these dwellings? Can we put them out on the water? In Panama, they're doing that in other places in the Maldives. They're building cities on the water. So do we have the ability to adapt? Yes, if we had the agreement to do that. Part of that is financial agreement because we must come up with the capital 
to actually invest in those outcomes, which is where my professional work is 100% focused on. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Impact Launchpad, which is a venture studio out of the UK for social impact. And we're doing our best to organize a concerted effort of our colleagues, even competitors, to establish a financial mechanism that can invest in human infrastructure. Like, And what does that mean? that off, it takes enormous agreement, which is why we ended up having the conversation about agreement. So that's why we're Oh, man, absolutely. It's like it's at our fingertips, the ability to turn the condensation or turn in the air, in the water to give people water that need it. And we don't have the agreement. We don't have the financial agreement. We don't have this. And how we get there seems like a really big challenge. I'm glad you're undertaking that. But someone is leading this revolution to get us to there. Like what's someone like me, just a regular everyday Joe, how might I contribute to this and be a part of it and be a part of the conversation to help manifest this? This sounds very exciting. There are a couple of specific things. Again, I do not want to proselytize that our conversation is the way to agreement and collaboration. It is one way. And if it appeals to people and they find it accessible that, yeah, I could actually have a conversation with another person about what enough is. That's not very difficult. If you recognize that in the story that I've told, like what would it take to deploy all those technologies in a Manhattan project? It's going to take enormous agreement to do that. But before you get enormous agreement, you have to have the small ones. And other people could respond to the world game challenge in very different ways. I know Mark Victor Hansen does in his ways as well. And so the best way to understand the world game is to participate in it at the level you feel capable of doing. And we've provided some avenues for that but other people can approach it in different ways. One of them is we have a, our signature effort is the launch in 2023 of a treaty of humanity. This is not a treaty of nations. It's a treaty of humans. And we're going to issue 100 million certificates to this treaty. And that's all there will be. People ask us, why is it limited? And that's a whole other story. But that's the game we're playing. You could call it a giant social research experiment. Well, we believe that the conversation people would have to have in order to have 100 million people sign that, you can see the wording on it. It's very simple. A child could sign it. It basically says, I'll devote my life to making as much agreement as I can so I can be a post-warrior, basically. You can't fail at it. It's a best effort. It's not a, it's not a treaty you make with all the other 100 million people. It's just a treaty you're making with yourself and your history and your future. And that is a moment of leadership. Please do not misunderstand how important incrementalism is particularly in the 21st century, where we have such technological capability to amplify good things. We can also amplify bad things and negative news and even fake news and all that, but we can absolutely amplify a conversation that's feasible as well as practical, because that's really what idealism and optimism as an impact benefit is all about. And I say to people, signing up for this treaty is as important or insignificant as a vote. <laughs> okay. And really, what is wealth but survival over time? And if you've got survival handled, it's choice, right? If you have more money in your pocket, you have more choice about where to eat. But that's also true if you have friends who are buying you dinner too. So there's a lot of ways of looking at wealth. I mean, I said earlier, it's built by agreement, not resources. But when you examine it from that standpoint, somebody's exercise, whether you consider it symbolic or not. Some of the lawyers out in your audience may disagree that I can call it a treaty and that's a fun conversation to have. (laughs) (laughs) I have some lawyers who love us and lawyers who do not. But our expression is is that if 100 million people sign this treaty over the next five years that we project, 
the conversation of all the people who didn't sign the treaty, which is part of that, is the real product and creates a ripple effect within the world. And so if you go, wow, this is too big, I can't make any difference. Well, you can make a difference if you sign that treaty and express yourself that way. And if you're not ready to do that, even on listening to this conversation or any other, you can certainly follow our social media and let the world know we exist. Yes. Because from the beginning of everything we've proposed and the story you can discover about us, People have loved the idea of what we want to do, particularly in our social impact venture studio. And they've always said, it would be great if you could pull it off, to which I've always said, we can if we get enough agreement. And anybody listening to my voice can help that further along by committing themselves to agreement using the tools that we've set up on istthereenough.org. Okay, yes. And I feel from seeing you, because there's a video component to our discussion, from seeing you, I feel the congruency, the conviction in what you're sharing. I've been a part of the conversation the whole time. Antenna's up. I feel it. I hear it. What I've heard is that by signing this treaty of humanity, that I am all in for creating or being a part of designing an environment where we figure out how to agree. We figure out how to come together and to tactically understand each other's values kind of start first with understanding each other and learn to agree. And if that's been my experience thus far, and I'm loving it, by the way, and if that is close to in the ballpark or a thousand miles away, but if that's close to what you're sharing, I'm in. But but help me understand, that's just one perspective that I'm feeling right now about it. Does that, what you've been trying to share, or, or how does that connect with what you're actually trying to share? I think it's exquisitely articulated because you've personalized it. You've appropriated our conversation to the way you see the world and the possibilities for the world and your personal contribution to it, which is exactly the design of our conversation. We're not here proselytizing anything other than can we value agreement above everything else? And then how you'll approach it and how I'll approach it and how somebody listening in the audience will approach that will be very different and, and, and I encourage, as I said, a thousand flowers blooming on this topic of collaboration for purpose as a form of human agency and power, as something that's accessible to us and something we can exercise. We don't have to be granted it from any powers that be, which is where our treaty basically says, I am an individual and I don't need an NGO or a government to tell me whether I have the authority to sign this or not. I can exercise this choice. And so I think your reinterpretation of it is exactly what we hope many people will do and appropriate it in their own way. And I'll mention, because I've mentioned Clubhouse and Social Audio a couple of times, there's a reference on istthereenough.org slash Clubhouse to our Clubhouse strategy. And there's a short video there that explains it that encourages anyone listening to my voice that really wants to participate to take the conversation of Is There Enough and apply it to their specific focus of interest, values, or expertise. So if you're interested in native issues, is there enough native justice? Is a conversation you can conduct, you can conduct inside our clubhouse room where you don't need our permission to do that. You have a couple of guidelines we ask you to abide by, agreements. <laughs> but other than those, we say, run with it. Go with this conversation as you wish. And all we ask is that you apply, is there enough hashtag to a second hashtag? And let's bring and convene people around those interests and apply that possibility thinking to your specific focus. So when people say, what can I actually do with this? That's something besides the treaty that people can do. And so it's a great platform for either leaders or emerging leaders who want to become leaders is to use our platform to talk about what interests them. 
So what I'm hearing right now is that when I am publishing a podcast episode, publishing something on LinkedIn or Facebook or wherever I would put out a regular daily post, put my regular hashtag eternal optimist in there, but also on the end of that, I could put hashtag is there enough to indicate that I want to be a part of the conversation of helping agreement be fostered throughout the world. Yeah. And you could follow it by another hashtag of what you think there's not enough of that you want to provoke. It is absolutely a question of provocation. A provocation is safety rather than war, but, but it is a provocation to realization. And I think that if you choose to take, is there enough, like, give me one of your most scarce values within your clientele that you wish they had more appreciation. The top of well, they, they, some people might be workaholics recovering and they may not give their best to their family, maybe empty the tank. So is there enough time left in the tank or enough energy to, to share my best with my family is a common thought from and, high performers. And, and, and as that comes out, I'm hearing that and I'm going, maybe that topic is, is there enough life balance? Mm. Right. So, okay. It's, mm -hmm. you, want, you want a question that is specific, but umbrella enough that can bring in people from a lot of different interests underneath that under interest, right? And you spoke about certain kinds of iterations. Other people might have other things that are in balance. Like you take a guy like me who wakes up every day bounding out of bed just to focus on this massive thing that I found myself involved in in my second life. I don't have any work-life balance, so I could probably learn from coming into your room about life balance. Is there enough life balance? And we'd be happy to promote that and support that. And it can be done more than once. You might find it a convening table of conversation that begins to expand your audience influence and understanding. Man, I'm fascinated. I'm intrigued. I want to keep going. I know that uh, we're getting near the end of our time. So I'd love to put a bookmark in this for now, Daniel, and ask you one of our final questions that it might be, how might we find out more about what you're doing, follow you, just get in the game? What's the specific place? You mentioned a 10-hour uh, program earlier. You, you've been talking about Clubhouse. Give us the lineup, sir, of how we might connect with you. Find out. We have put together some very easy to digest pieces on istthereenough.org, where you'll see reference to the Agreement Academy, our core conversations, as I've mentioned, even the second question of is there enough, which is what are we going to do about it? And the hidden question of am I enough? Those are all there on that website. There's also where people can figure out what they can actually do with this. There's the reference to Clubhouse there and also reference to a book we have coming out that maybe when it comes out, you and I can have a return conversation to discuss which is called the first agreement, which by the way, the first agreement is to have one. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's the book, ladies and gentlemen. That's the first agreement. Boom. No. Awesome. And that is available if people are excited about that, uh, not only for pre-order on the website link you'll find on isthereenough.org, but people can actually be involved in the community of people that are promoting it because this is really a book about human survival. It's not really a book of Daniel Madelon's thoughts, even though my thoughts will be in there. But it's really a, a handbook of human evolution through the way we language and relate with each other in this vein. Following our social media is so important, and particularly YouTube and building up the subscriber base there really gets the attention of the powers that be that see that sort of stuff. So please do not minimize that LinkedIn, all of that stuff that we're on. And if you're moved enough from either what you hear right here to want to sign up for the pre-registration of the treaty, 
the treaty will launch in, in 23, but the pre-registrants are going to be in a special place of leadership in our history. So if you want to be part of that, we, we really invite you to consider that as a personal opportunity for yourself. And it's it's a serious commitment we ask of you. It's the only commitment. We don't have any follow-up. There's no sort of other things to sell behind it or anything like that. But if you're not at the place where you're ready to sign it, we have a survey, what we call a survey that makes our case as to why humanity even needs a treaty. And it takes about 20 minutes to go through. And I encourage people who really want to understand and deliberate about what kind of commitment that they would engage in by by signing this pre-registration, that they go through that survey. So those are some really specific things. And then finally, as I've mentioned before, please join us on Clubhouse, or you can watch our Clubhouse on YouTube. And we release eight new topics every month. And then maybe we'll be including some with you, perhaps if we follow up like, and, and those are all the ways people can actually participate. Wow. My jaw dropped. This is fantastic. It's been a very, very insightful and enjoyable conversation, Daniel. I want to thank you. This has been great. And everyone be sure to check out istthereenough.org. There'll be uh, links in the show notes, links to the Agreement Academy, to Clubhouse, to YouTube channel. So please check all that out. And uh, Daniel, it has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure and honor, my friend. And I look forward to continued discussions and maybe even potentially having our Treaty of Humanity up on some of my sites because I've been really impressed and love what I've heard so far. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, sir. I'm much appreciated for your inspiration to humanity. Thank you. And if you don't mind me just acknowledging and recognizing how valuable your work is in putting clarity, inspiration, and a focus on action with respect to an optimistic future. We need more of your voices out there. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Love you. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.